Welcome to a special program, the Michelle Miao Show here at the Commonwealth Club. For those who are joining us for the first time, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Just be you. <laughs> Our special guest. Oh, wow. I can't wait to... Uh, to really get into what she means to me personally, but I'll introduce her as the co-creator of The Daily Show. Uh, uh, co- yeah, right? Yeah. Co-founder of the Air America uh, Progressive Radio Network, a uh, stand-up comedian whose work has been featured in CNN, MSNBC, Comedy Central, uh, feminist, activist, Shiro, and also author who published her own non-memoir in 2012, Liz Free or Die. Let's welcome Liz Winstead to the program. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, nice. So where do we start? Should we start with, let's start with Minneapolis, a strong Catholic uh, upbringing yes. and an imaginative mind and somewhat, um, I'm going to say, super fantasy loaded for yourself. I mean, you've always been entertaining, not to just folks, but even entertaining yourself as a kid. Yeah. Um, I (laughs) I don't don't mean that in a, no, I think so. It's, I come, you know, from a large Catholic family. Um, so a Catholic family, what? So a Catholic, so a Catholic family. And then also one of those, um, Five kids. I'm the youngest, and I'm the youngest by six years. Wow! So it's that like, what happened for six years? Catholics like <laughs> don't not have sex for six. So I don't know. There was like a lot of mystery and weird separation. And it's four girls and a boy. So when I was born, I was either not supposed to be or definitely supposed to be a boy. Um, and so it was kind of one of those things where my parents were just exhausted and my parents had me at 41 and 42 and, and everybody just like left. And it was like, my siblings were getting, you know, my brothers and his friends were like, um, my brother, thank God, pulled a low number for Vietnam, but his friends were going to Vietnam. There was constantly fights at our, at our dining, dining room table. And I was just always just sitting there like this young person with nothing to say. Um, and so I just would start having like fantasy life in public. <laughs> At gatherings, like I would sometimes, I'll never forget, and I write about this in the book, um, I was at a, I was at a, there was baby showers every 15 minutes, right, when you're brought up Catholic. So I was at a baby shower, and I've never liked babies. I've just never enjoyed them. I felt like they were just always got way too much credit. Um, (laughs) You know, they just like, what did they do? They farted, and they sat there, and I was like, I can like wrap both of my legs around my head, pay attention to me. Um, and so they would give you the baby without asking and like, hold the baby. And it was like holding a bag of charcoal. And it, it was just the whole thing was a mess. And so I remember I was at one of these showers and I wanted to be, just become invisible. And what that meant for me was to curl up in a chair and literally wrap my legs around my head in a dress um, and sit there thinking that I was invisible when really I was just basically exposing myself at age seven um, at the party. My mom was like, you have to sit and I'm like, how can you see me? I'm secret here. She's like, no, you're actually exposing yourself. And I was like, well, the baby could cover it. Yeah. 
And it was like it was a conservative upbringing, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, very conservative. My father actually was born and raised in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And so for anybody who knows their history, um, that's the town where the Goodman-Schwerner-Cheney murders happened. And my father's first cousin was the, actually the architect, um, Edgar Ray Killen. My sister actually wrote a book about it. Um, wow. And so he and my mother met during World War II in Washington, D.C. Um, and then she dragged him to what he called the People's Republic of Minnesota. <laughs> um, and... Um, we were raised there, thank God, not in Mississippi, because that would have been a hellhole. Yeah. Were you ever, uh, as a young person or, or later, were you ever a conservative yourself? Or? No. No. My parents were so stupid. They, um, <laughs> they sent us to, like, a Jesuit Catholic school. Like, they just kept it. Like, we lived in Minnesota. There was always this this practical liberalism surrounding us. The Scandinavians in Minnesota, you know, they're very, like, they're not liberal because they're just liberal because it's just a more practical thing to do, you know, like if it's snowing, you, you have to help someone plow their sidewalk, you know? I mean, it's just like, I'll never forget. You go to Minnesota and you'll say, so why would you wake up at, at, you know, three in the morning if somebody called you and drive 20 miles to help them because their car died? And they'll say, well, because I could. You know, like, it's like that whole, like, temperament of you just live in a community. And when you have weather like that, I I think you develop two things, a strong sense of community and a strong sense of sharing and a really strong sense of storytelling. So I think those two things are um, incredibly important um, there. But, you know, yeah, my parents were very conservative, but I think I was raised really more by the culture with which I lived. And because I never... Um, just, I wasn't trying to be rebellious. I just did not connect in any way, shape or form to the traditional roles that were placed upon, you know, female presenting people. And I was just like, I'm not, marriage does not interest me. Um, I had a doll that I got that was, a, it was a doll that peed, <laughs> they would give you, right? <laughs> And that was the trick. That was the fun thing about it is that you would give it a bottle and it would pee. And after, and you could change its diaper. You know, that was basically how they raised us by these toys that were actually just work. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You would get like a little oven and a little fridge. And I was like, why don't you just give me a little couch with a drunken husband on it? You know, (laughs) let's just live the dream. Um, but I remember um, this doll that I had. I was like, this doll bored me after five minutes. You know, you'd give it the bottle, it would pee. So I just like assessed the doll. I'm like, what else can I do with this doll? And I was like, well, if you give the doll a bottle and it pees, that means if I put the doll, if I put the bottle where it pees, I can make it barf. <laughs> so I put the bottle in the doll hole. And running into the living room to show my mother that I was an inventor. (laughs) So I'm running in with this bottle in the vagina of a doll, squirting it as it's barfing. And I'm like, look, mom, the doll does this. And then they put me into psychotherapy. (laughs) Because apparently that wasn't charming at all. Apparently that was disturbing. So I always have a, a favorite question to ask an activist, like that moment in which, you know, the first moment you uh, uh, remember being the activist or speaking up for injustice. I think for you, it was the moment in which um, 
you were told that you couldn't be an altar boy because you're a girl. Yes. That was some bullshit. (laughs) Um, So back in the battle days, there used to just be altar boys, right? They wouldn't allow girls to be altar boys. And they were making a lot of money at like weddings and funerals, like more than we made babysitting. They would get like 15 bucks serving at weddings and funerals. And I was like, I want in on that. It really wasn't altruistic. It was really more like there's an economic divide here that I need to get in on. (laughs) And so I just thought no one had thought to ask, like no girl (laughs) had thought to ask. And so I went to the priest and I was like, you know, I would like to be an altar boy And the priest did that thing adults do when they don't have a good answer and they panic. So, you know, they did this rubbing of the pants, you know, like, I don't know what to say. So he's, so he's like thought about it and he was like, well, you know, it's called altar boy. And I was like, well, you could just call it something else. Like, I feel like that's not great. So I said, you know, you could just call an altar girl. You could just call me an altar girl. And he was like, well, uh, I don't know. Why don't you get a petition and send it to the archbishop? (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I started getting a petition with which my mother was furious. And every adult was like, um, don't do that petition. Don't do that petition. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, you know, Okay, do the petition. And what I didn't know is that the archbishop of the archdiocese was a massive alcoholic. Um, and they were like, and he would never read it. And so um, I got my petition all going and I sent it off. And then, like two weeks later, he literally drove his car into the wall of a 7 Eleven during Lent. Oh. <laughs> and it was in the paper. Oh. And he never answered my thing. So. I never got to be a server, but now there are girls that are servers in the Catholic church, apparently. So that's, that's the progress they've made. Yay. Apparently. Well, they say this Pope is awesome because he believes in science. I'm like, that's not, that's fucking common sense. Like I <laughs> stop patting the Pope on the back for having common sense. You know, it's like, well, let me ask the same question, but in a slightly different way, which is when did you realize, and maybe the, what the story you just told was kind of it, or maybe there was another time where you realize the world could be changed, that you could change it, that you could do something to make it better? Uh, I think, I think I, what I realized was through just a series of, um, every time I just tried to pursue something that I wanted to do, um, there was always that roadblock of, um, but women just don't do that. Or, or if you're, if you do it and you're good at it, you're a threat, you know? And so, um, realizing I could make change, um, I don't know if it went that way for me. I think, I think I just did things that, um, I felt responsible responsible for something larger than myself in, in my work. And so it, it wasn't enough just to make people laugh. I wanted to sort of have something more to say, you know, it wasn't enough just to tell political jokes. I wanted to, um, if I was going to give people information through humor, I wanted to add a call to action to it. And so it was kind of like, 
every step of the way that I discovered how I wanted to do my work, um, it just came out of me. I don't know that there was an intention behind thinking I could change something rather than almost like, let me not just take up space, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I think that was more of it. And I think, but I do think that the activism part, um, when I was finally got to a point um, a few years back when I formed, I, I have a nonprofit now called Abortion Access Front, um, where I could combine the humor and the awareness raising and um, hitting on the ground and actually helping providers in hard hit places and helping grow activist bases and and really seeing that um, there's quite a need for, especially people providing the care to get the support that they want and seeing how important it was for them to have a connection to humanity. Um, I think that's what keeps me going every day, I think, is is understanding who and why I'm doing the work and having a connection with them. So. That's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. And we're going to get to Abortion Access Front a, a little later when we talk about all the great stuff that you're doing now. Uh, but, you know, geez, we can't not talk about The Daily Show right. and yeah, that's America. Okay, so that, yeah, that's coming up. That's cool. coming up. But, yeah. you know, to your point in, in finding your voice and the platform you went, you went the route of stand-up comedy yeah. and, and, and politics. I mean... That was so easy, right? Like, you yeah. were just sold out everywhere, raking the big bucks, you living know, in Beverly Hills. for sure. I yeah. mean, the thing is, when you're a woman and you decide to have an opinion, people just say, please, let's make space for you. <laughs> like, that was just, like, practically the easiest thing in the world. Just like, oh, could we please step aside and allow you to speak? Um, no, I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, there's still, to this day, every you know, six months, somebody writing a thing piece of, are women funny? You know, I mean, it's just this endless question that like men keep asking and it's like, you want the answer to be no and it's not. Shut up. Um, (laughs) Too crazy. But I think, I mean, I think the thing I realized that was profound was um, if you are a a woman or a marginalized person or somebody who is not part of like the structure you normally see of somebody having um, agency and a platform and you decide to take the stage and you decide that your opinion or your voice matters, that in and of itself is a radical act. Like just standing up and saying what you think is in and I, I'll never forget when I started doing stand up. um, I wasn't, I wasn't political for about the first four years. I would talk a little bit about feminist issues, but I was doing observational humor and looking at the world and, um, like, you know, I would have jokes that were not particularly enlightening, but maybe sort of cute. Like, you know, have you ever noticed when you play Monopoly with bald guys, they always pick the hat? Okay. You know, <laughs> fine. It's a fine joke. It's cute. It's an observation. Um, I, like, I love it. So, um, so I would say things like ever notice or I was wondering if, you know, I would phrase my jokes like that. And then... Um, Material that had been pretty solid, just like all of a sudden started falling off and not working anymore. And I was like, God, I wonder if my timing's off. I wonder like what I'm doing wrong. So I taped myself and I realized that I had subconsciously started saying, I think, instead of ever wonder, 
And when I started saying I think, and it literally could be I think, and then something really stupid. But it was the fact of the matter is that I, with authority, was leading a sentence with I think, it changed the way the audience was reacting to the same material. And I was like, if I'm going to start a sentence with I think, and they're going to be pissed anyway, I should say what I think. (laughs) (laughs) And so I eventually did a little bit more material, but my, I think my big um, comedy awakening and, and trajectory from observational to really talking about the world was, um, it's kind of a long-winded story, and I'll get, I'll get you'll understand, because the lead's going to sound like, where's she going? So um, it's a sort of specific time, but it was, um, I had just moved to New York, and it was 1991, and it was before dating sites, before anything, and somebody set me up on a blind date. And I was like, ugh, I do not want to go on a blind date. They never work. They're dumb. And she's like, no, just meet this guy. You'll like him. It'll be fine. And I was like, that's a ringing endorsement. (laughs) Like, do I seem like the kind of person that's like, I just want to go with anyone, even if it's fine. (laughs) But I was like, okay, I'll go. So he calls me up and he's like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, um, La Dolce Vita is playing at the film forum and I've never seen it on a big screen. And there's an audible silence on the other end of the phone. And he's like, um, isn't that in black and white? (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to die. But I'm from Minnesota, and I said I was going to go, so I'm going on this date because I'm nice. (laughs) I'm nice. (laughs) So uh, I meet him at the film forum, and he is wearing a Yankees hat and a satin Yankees baseball jacket. And I have a theory that if a guy is wearing more than one piece of sports memorabilia, they probably won't go down on you. So (laughs) that is my theory. I'm going to remember that. So now I'm on a date where it's not even going to be cheap sex. It's just (laughs) going to be a bummer. And then we go into the theater and La Jolte Vita is a beautiful film. And he falls asleep. (laughs) And he falls asleep and so he keeps sliding down (laughs) and that satin jacket keeps running up against me (laughs) and then he quickly gets up and he slides up and it's driving me insane but because I'm nice and I'm from Minnesota I'm like Liz calm down don't do anything stupid just let him slide it's gonna be fine so he just kept sliding through in the whole movie and it was so disruptive that I just took my greasy popcorn hand and I purposely went, wake up! Just And, and I was <laughs> wrecked his jacket. And then I felt instantly terrible. And then I was like, oh my God, I feel instantly terrible. And so instead of just like living with my shittiness and realizing that was going to end the date and it'd be fine, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I take you out for a drink? Prolonging the fucking night. So he's like, okay. I know a sports bar. And I was like, of course you do. Let's just go there. That's my punishment for reckoning your car. I'm going to go to the sports bar. So we go to the sports bar and instead of sports being on, it's the night of the first Gulf war. And 
1991, that night of that first Gulf War, it was the first war that actually started in our living rooms, for real. Like, the war started on TV, where we actually saw it live in real time. It wasn't like Vietnam, where we saw it on the news at 6. It was happening in real time. And CNN was the only cable news channel at that time. And there was a theme song. There was graphics. There was very attractive people reporting from Baghdad on roofs. And I'm watching it all play out. And I'm, I was literally thinking to myself, are they reporting on a war or trying to sell me on a war? And it was the first time that that connection was really made for me. And about five minutes later, this date was like, this is really awesome. And I was like, oh my God, you're gone. And this is crazy because our media is literally propaganda for the government in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. And it was literally an epiphany for me. I changed the way I wrote comedy. I changed the way I took in information. And from that point forward, for me, I was, my comedy changed to not only talk about our government, but really to talk about the media's role in how we um, got our news. And Mm -hmm. so that, that was sort of like a turning point for all of it. I think that's a great segue to the daily show. Yeah. 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 Uh, John, I want to get in. I want to lead to that, but because when we talk about the stuff you've co-created and co-founded, you're really talking about a powerful woman in comedy. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I, I learned just, it was only a few years ago when I was reading up on Carol Burnett and I read something that in the late sixties, CBS was contractually obliged to give her her own television show. And I was like, I had no idea she was that big at the time. You know, I knew her from the six seventies, excuse me, when I was growing up. And of course she went on, she created the most, you know, one of the most beloved yeah. long lasting, uh, shows of, of our lifetimes really. Um, but I mean, it goes without saying there aren't a lot of women who have got reached that level of not just success, but power right. where she ran the show. She hired, you know, she got to work with the people she wanted tell as you get into talking about the daily show and, and your other, uh, other programs that you worked on, what was it like? Did you have to struggle to prove yourself not then as a comedian, but as someone who could make the decision, someone who could, you know, get listened to in, in a pretty brutal business? Well, I had a very weird experience because for me, um, there was so few women who were and still are that actually do political comedy and talk about politics. People talk about social issues, but talk straight up about politics in, in their act, right? So I do both. And so I had done it for four or five years um, previous to the show. And so um, I had a fluke situation of, um, I got, I landed, John Stewart had a small talk show before the daily show. And um, he asked me to be a producer on that show. Mm-hmm. And I did. And that show got canceled. And then John was snatched up by David Letterman to take him off the market. And so, yeah, because he was threatened by him and they, and he was like, I don't want this guy to go on and do something else. So I'm going to take him off the market, give him a whole bunch of money, act like we're developing something for him and nothing, nothing happened. Um, so the, my bosses at the John Stewart show 
got the job running Comedy Central. The whole, the whole channel? Yeah, the whole channel. Wow. And so they brought me and the, my boss at the Jon Stewart show over there and said, uh, we want to do a show that's on every day. And I said, wow, okay. And they said, you know, we want it to be news and politics. And I said, great. Um, are you saying you want me to make that show? <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And I was like, you know, I've never made a show. I just worked on this one. And they're like, yeah, we know. But, you know, we want it to be current and political. And I was like, okay. So then I started blabbing like I knew what I was fucking talking about. (laughs) And I was like, well, the one thing we really should do is satirize the news. And so the show should be a comedy show that um, the, the news is a character in the show. And I think that the host should be somebody that is like, I used the phrase Ted Baxter at the time. That you're, um, is a buffoon. Um, uh, and maybe even less so, maybe more like William Hurt in broadcast news where you're not sure if this buffoon is in on it or not. Um, and then have the correspondence and everybody look exactly like the news, but they are bumbling fools who are literally giving the party line. And they were like, okay. And I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> And then I was like, and then I was like really pushing it. And I was like, and I don't think we should do a pilot. I don't think we should, a pilot's a one episode test. I was like, I think we should really just needs to grow. So I think you should just let us go on the air for a year and figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, okay. (laughs) And I was like, what is happening right now? I've just told them all this shit. I don't know how to do anything. (laughs) Um, And so I was allowed for some weird reason with Madeline to create this show with which got to have its legs on the ground every day. And I think, um, I think that I learned by making every mistake you could make. And I think that it succeeded because, um, the person who is running the creative on a team when you have to say no a lot to other creatives, there's two things that need to, you need to be for sure. And that is funny as shit. Um, and so that if you have to kill somebody's joke and come up with a new one, they have to understand that you can do that and believe that you're funny enough to do it. And the second thing is um, when the network said no, I promised I would fight for the joke and I would get myself in trouble constantly with the network going to them, complaining. But when somebody sees you advocating for their material, um, that's, that's all they want. They know you're not going to win every time, but you know, you can get into writer's room situations and I've been in them where it's like, uh, let's not even try that because like, they're just going to say no, or don't bring it that far to the edge. I'm always like, bring it over and we'll bring it back. Like bring it to where you think it it shouldn't go. And then we'll bring it back. Um, and that's just, you in, You can get a lot of confidence out of people uh, if you work that way. Can you remember any jokes that you got away with that you convinced them to run that you thought they would never agree to this? Yes. And there's a trick. Um, sometimes you write a joke that's so awful because you have a one that you really want to get on the air. <laughs> um, so there was one situation where um, Bush was, was, it was George Bush and he was um, doing something with Jerry Falwell, just like being a total tool for Jerry Falwell. And so I think we said, um, 
something like, I can't remember how the joke went, but it was something like, um, if you can't, if you can't see the whites of his eyes, it's because his head's up Jerry Falwell's ass or something like marginal. And we just put it out there. Um, and they go, you can't say that. And I was like, okay. I was like, good. They fell for it. Um, and then the joke that went on the air was, um, because George Bush was tongue darting Jerry Falwell. Which is a much funnier joke. Filthy. And they didn't know what it meant. So we were like, look at that. We got George Bush tongue-darting Jerry Falwell right there on TV. I feel super <laughs> proud. Not smartest joke, but also just to be able to just take two people who we found vile and put them in a compromising situation that they both have demonized others for doing with joy. So that was more the point. <laughs> yes. I have so many questions that I'd love to ask about, you know, the Daily Show and your experiences, but uh, can't hog the entire hour. Uh, Pretty soon here, in about 10, 15 minutes, we're going to allow the audience to ask your own questions. So be thinking about it. John's going to run around with the mic, I think. That's the plan. So just kindly raise your hand. Um, But now I'd like to to pivot to Air America. Oh, boy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, like, what you mean to me. And I said in the green room, I don't like it. You know, just based off the memoir that I read, because I'd be probably describing you as mother-like, and I know how you feel about babies. Uh, (laughs) I think parenting is fine for others. I feel like you're welcome that I understand I would be a terrible parent. Like, I did an assessment. I have no need to, like... I would be bad at it. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though. You, you know, and I'm just going to give you some perspective, but all of the, the work... And what you went through, the good, the bad, um, Air America got me my first gig in radio. And, and at the time, like they brought me on as an intern to do this queer show in San Francisco and it's on the first progressive or, you know, radio station, um, AM, the quake. And the only way that I would be able to actually get a badge to get into the building as if I agreed to become a sales uh, ad person. Uh, So I said yes. And so that was the beginning of my radio career in selling snake oil and penis enhancement vitamins for a progressive station that was part of Air America. So, you know, and that was a long-winded way of saying, like, thank you. I feel like you... (laughs) You know, I feel like so proud right now. (laughs) But that was like the thing that's interesting you say that because it was launching Air America. It was fraught with craziness. It was a Vanity Fair article, like literally went that we had a grifter who was like our CEO who like pretended there was money when there wasn't. But aside from that, um, what we could not figure out is when we launched uh, we first launched um, on the internet, and it was the number one launch of any internet thing that had ever happened on the internet when we launched Air America. And um, and the AM stations that eventually came were doing really well. And we could not sell cars or beer or soap like Rush and everybody else because they said it was radical. Mm-hmm. And it was like 97% of all of talk radio at that point was conservative. I think it's now 95%. Like, it's not anything great. But the fact that we all know what those talk radio hosts say 
And that giant major corporate advertising was going into it versus us literally speaking the truth and not being able to get our nickels rubbed together so that we could sell boner pills and some oil version of boner pills. Um, (laughs) It was massively frustrating. Yeah. But um, it was a really exciting time because um, for those of you that are not familiar with Air America, it was this, I was living in LA and um, after 9-11 happened, it was nearly impossible to do political satire. The shows, I had left The Daily Show and the shows that were on the air um, could survive, but anybody trying to do anything else, people wouldn't pick it up. The networks were like, we're going with what the government says. We were hit by terrorists. I'm like, where are we? Uh, you know, it was just like a lot of crazy, like jingoistic, patriotic rhetoric and you were hosed. And, um, I was trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. I was working on this horrible MTV spring break show that like literally that story is too long. Um, but I got a call from this guy, uh, in New York who said, hi, um, I got your number from Al Franken and he said that we're looking, he wanted us to, we're launching this progressive radio network and we really need a program director and we're looking for a Liz Winstead type. (laughs) And I was like, first of all, I'm a type. And second of all, what's wrong with me? Like, why do you want Liz Winstead adjacent? And I was like, are you telling me that you're launching a 24 hour radio network that is literally comedy and politics and it's, back in New York. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, I'll totally do it. (laughs) Um, and so it was, I was tasked with having my own show from nine to noon, having to find my own co-host for that show and then staffing up this entire lineup. And so, you know, I reached out to people that I thought would be great. I got Mark Marin and we had Janine Garofalo and Sam Cedar on in the night and this woman, Randy Rhodes and Ed Schultz. And then, um, Al Franken had his show and then I realized I needed a show and I didn't have a, I needed to find a co-host and I needed to find like a sidekick. Each show was in a three pod where it was like, we had somebody who was political and funny. We needed somebody who would drive the information. And then you had a person who was sort of a, a cleanup person who could come in and talk about a lot of different things, more of a cultural person. Um, and I had looked through so many tapes. I mean, they were trying to tell me to do a show with Gloria Allred. I'm like, no. <laughs> they had like terrible Jerry Springer. No, <laughs> like just terrible. And I had stacks and stacks and stacks of demo tapes that were all terrible. And then everybody was recommending people. Like when you are programming any kind of network, everybody's got a really talented friend. Um, and so my friend Paul, who ditched me. He lived in New York and he ditched me and moved to the fucking Northampton, Massachusetts so he could pick apples and just whatever. (laughs) He's like, I have a friend. I'm like, oh, of course you do. Send me the tape. So he sends me the tape and it sits on my table for like two weeks. And I was like, I've heard everything. Who's Paul's friend? And I listened to it and it's Rachel Maddow. Yeah, and so I love I'm, this story. I know. So I'm like, oh, Paul's friend's talented. Maybe I'll bring her down. So I called her up and I said, Paul sent me your demo. Could you come and meet with us? And she goes, Yep, I'm hopping on a bus in 15 minutes. 
<laughs> and I was like, wow, you're very motivated. <laughs> so she hopped, literally hopped on the Peter Pan bus from Northampton and um, came down and met me. And um, in her hand, she had, um, she had talked to Paul. And I couldn't get my dog into the building. Um, and I love my dog. I'm a real dog person. And so she comes up to the interview and she has a vest with all these patches sewn on it that say like help dog or whatever that is and um and all this stuff and all this research about how you just lie about your dog to get into a building and say that your dog is a help dog and she goes i hear you have narcolepsy and i was like i do Hmm. um and she goes well here's this help dog thing and here's what you talk about narcolepsy and here's how you get your dog in the building and you don't know about your dog anymore and i was like wow and you're smart, and this was a really good job interview. You just got my dog into the building. Um, and then we just talked a little bit about, you know, life. And she's from, you know, um, the East Bay. And uh, just talked a lot about her life and about that. And um, I hired her ass, and she was my radio co-host with Chuck D. from Public Enemy uh, for two years, which was a wild trip. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And now oh. she's gone on to do something else. I don't know where she is now. Yeah, right. <laughs> In fact, she's here Sunday night yeah. with yeah. the book. Yep. Cross town. Yeah. How long then did you stay with Air America? I was Were you there, there till the bitter end? Were no. You- no, bitter bitter being the optimum. <laughs> no, no, I know the, the end. No, so here's how I left. You want to know how I left? Because this shit sucks. So um, this grifter investor... Things got real crazy, and this is going to sound very familiar. You know how when things start getting bad, um, Machiavelli starts to lose their mind, and then shit's bad decisions start to get made. Sound familiar about the world you woke up in today? Um, so this guy was, like, freaking out, and um, the board fired him, and they hired this guy who came from radio named Danny Goldberg. He had no idea about talk radio. He had no idea about anything. But one thing that he knew for sure is that he was going to revive Air America. um, And he was going to make some changes. Because the one thing he knew for sure is that comedy wasn't an effective tool for social change. Yeah. So Danny Goldberg takes over. And... The first thing he does is fire me and Mark Marin because we're not effective to social change. Um, moves Rachel to five in the morning, Chuck D to the weekends, and gives our show to Jerry Springer. Mm-hmm. Oh, jeez! I never thought in my career that I would ever lose a job to Jerry Springer, but there we were. Yeah. <laughs> So I left there, and then soon after that, Rachel um, started subbing at MSNBC and then moved her way over there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a story about that. And then, you know, that just was quickly the downfall of the network. Yeah, it all started just shitting the bed. When the San Francisco AM Air America station told Rachel, I'm sorry, we're not going to carry your program anymore. No one's listening to your show. That was when she got picked up by MSNBC. So then they were like, hey, you call Rachel's people or something and try to get her back. And and we're, we'll re, we'll we'll just rebroadcast her MSNBC show. And, and it was clearly like, so you want what? 
because I'm a lesbian, we're going to get her back? No. Yeah. The answer was like, hell no. Yeah. Like, you know, and you call she it. Today. You yeah. fired her. No. Yeah. Like, oh, no, I'm not calling. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> anyway, That's unbelievable. Uh, I would, I mean, gosh, I, I can't believe that um, 45 minutes has already gone by. So, so many, many, many things we're, we still want to talk about all the great stuff that you're doing now, but let's give a chance to our audience to ask Liz some questions. So if you've got a question, raise your hand. I should point out that in the back room, when I asked her, is there anything she didn't want to talk about? She said, no. So (laughs) anything you want to ask her. Three quick points. Hello from Sophia Yen. Ah! In defense of the New York Yankees, Jim Bouton died (laughs) recently, and I reread Ball Four. Last sentence that book is one of the greatest sentences in the English language, and I beg you, please, to read it. But the other thing is, geez, Liz, I mean, what are we doing? (laughs) I mean, that is a large statement question. (laughs) What are we doing? I know. I don't know what the answer. I don't know that that has an answer. We're trying. Mm. Hi. Hi. I just have a question about sort of the presidency. As someone who grew up in the 60s, and saw Kennedy lie to me about Vietnam, and saw Johnson lie to me about Vietnam, and saw Nixon lie to me about Vietnam, and have seen subsequent presidents lie to me about Vietnam. Could a woman president lie that much Mm. about a war? Yeah. I mean, I think, because truth be told, um, if the system doesn't change, it's going to produce, you know people who need to exist in the system. And so I think the nobility of a woman is good on some level, but I also think that if you have a system where money drives how you become a leader and you have a media that is corporate, I don't, you know, unless you get money out of media and get money out of politics, I don't know how you cannot have a flawed, flawed leadership. I just don't see it. I hate to say, but even, even having said that, there is a woman I particularly really like who's running for president. Yeah. Who's got a plan. Yeah. <laughs> also, she wears fleece vests and into bondage, apparently, which I extra love. That's amazing. I thought that was a Minnesota thing. Turns out it's a not. When you told your story about the blind date. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say someone set you up with a blind date with, uh, you know, the one who, uh, I can't believe I forgot his name, Daly, John Stewart. John Stewart. Yeah, that's who I thought you were going to tell us. No, turns with. out, no. So I, I didn't date curious. my way to the Daily Show, man. <laughs> I got there because I'm fucking smart and funny. So I was curious to know, because you didn't talk about it at all. I'm sure lots of people are curious. Just how did you meet and get along? And do you still see him? John Stewart? Um, I met him doing stand-up. Like we were friends doing stand-up. So, um, yeah, that's how we met. Um, we actually wrote another show together, this weird variety show um, that never saw the light of day. Um, yeah, but we met, we met doing stand-up. Um, I never see him now. No one does. He's like doing this cra- – he is doing – I don't know if you know the work he's doing for um, 
for people, first responders who, yeah, so he is buried in that. He lives in New Jersey now, so good luck with that. (laughs) Go ahead. But yeah. He's raising kids, and it's yeah. That like it's like he's just really, really doing his nonprofit stuff big. Yeah. I was wondering if you had any comments about why there are so few conservative comedians. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, I think, truthfully, there are. There's this pocket of conservative comics that are we've never heard of because they work in circles that are just their own circles. And what's super weird about that is because conservative media is so strong, you would think that we would have heard of them, but we don't. They're terrible. Like this guy named um, something Crowder who's terrible. Um, I honestly, though, think that it's not interesting to take, you know, punching down is not interesting. Right. And, you know, good news for the big guy. Like, that's not great. Right. And so, you know, if you're literally fighting for um, those who are in power to have more power, comedy speaks truth to power. Good comedy, in my opinion. And so if you are power that is um, speaking fake news to power, I feel like that's not really going to work. And it's always been super bizarre that there hasn't really been that breakthrough, but somebody did the psychological study about people who um, have progressive and liberal political leanings and people who have conservative leanings. And um, the study was that conservatives respond to fear and liberals respond to um, humor and poking fun at hypocrisy when it comes to commentary. And so I think that since humor is commentary, um, the conservatives lean more towards, they think Rush is funny. They lean more towards that reactionary, fuck you for calling me out and it's your own fault if life is not good for you and that kind of like weird um, mob mentality versus we're all in this together and let's look at these people up on the hill that we should make fun of who are, you know, making all of our lives more horrible. That's such a great answer. I was going to answer, well, I don't want Milo Yiannopoulos. Isn't no. <laughs> I mean, no. no. Okay, another question? Just a quick pop culture question about how um, Mrs. Maisel yes. has become a whole different viewpoint of women in comedy. And I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. I love that show. Um, and I love presenting her in that framework. Um, there weren't a lot of women doing it. It's a big fantasy, like <laughs> what she does and, and how she could just escape and become this amazing stand-up comic who could just riff like that and not, ha- you know, it's all. But I like the idea of of her working in, in those nightclubs and doing it, um, but it's not in any way, shape, or form um, real, which is maybe why I like to watch it. I like the fantasy of it, and I like her outfits. I mean, her outfits and her, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a story about somebody surviving, and I like that, I think. Great. Question over here. Yeah. Hello, I'm Gio from South Korea, where political satire and comedy is pretty rare. So what you have done is like really impressive and interesting for me. So 
like my question is um have you ever like faced to um the situation that you it, it's like you're scared or threatened to talk about specific issues like feminism or like abortion and if you had like how did you overcome um you know it's there's been steps throughout the way of talking about politics where i've 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 felt different levels of threatened right so there was um when i was doing started to make my stand up be more political there were agents and managers who said i'm not going to book you and so i had to develop an audience that wanted to hear it and so i had to do a lot of guerrilla marketing and i had to do a lot of not comedy clubs but like small theaters and try to fill it with people and try to get into bookstores with leaflets and flyers and stuff like that to make that happen um and then it it just there was always that threat of you're not going to make it if you have an opinion but it wasn't really i felt I didn't feel physically threatened really until I really started doing the reproductive rights and abortion work. And that's every day now. I get death threats every day. Um, and I get people coming to my shows, every show, protesting outside of the shows. Um, and I got to be honest, I turned 50 and I was just like, I don't give a fuck what mm. you think mm. because what I'm doing is more important than how you're trying to make me feel to stop doing it because every time I get a threat it's that same person on Twitter it's that same person that voted for Trump it's that same person who's trying to keep shut us all down and not vote and not pay attention that it fuels me even harder so I'm not afraid of them and also when you see how few people are actually talking about reproductive rights compared to how much it's being legislated um i don't know what else i would do and a bully is a bully is a bully and honestly i just this summer so i'm on tour about four months out of the year with a whole group of people who do this work and when we were in Milwaukee taking on these horrible anti-abortion extremists and they have those giant bloody fetus signs and we had made big giant signs to block their signs and and I was trying to block this guy and I was being a, sort of good at it and um and he was so pissed off that I was like m- making his moves to block his sign that he was like why are you even here and I was like you're the one that begged for me to be born let's be real <laughs> but it's like You know, I just like, honestly, it's, they're, they're, they're so dangerous and they seem like outlier extremists, but they're not. They're lobbying Congress people. They are in state legislatures and they are literally the norm now of the conservative movement and seeing it as much as I have, it's just more important than ever. So my fear kind of just went away when I just hit 50. I was just like, I don't care. Like, if you're not feeding me, fucking me, or paying me, your opinion is like at the bottom of the list of people I care about. Well, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to say it to myself every day. Sure. <laughs> Do it. To follow up on that, Michelle mentioned that what your uh, group is doing on the reproductive rights. You didn't talk about that. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, 
I formed an organization about five years ago called Abortion Access Front, and the work we do is sort of threefold. Um, we make videos that expose on a national level and on a state level um, what's happening in each of the states. Um, and then the other thing that we do is we travel around the country and we do shows very much like this. If this were a comedy show that we did first and then afterwards we have a conversation between our fan base and a local abortion provider and the activists in that community. And then our audience learns what's at stake in their state and then how they can help and activate to fight the laws and to also bring um, practical and emotional support to the people that provide the care. Um, one thing that I discovered, I probably visited about 140 clinics um, throughout the country. And every single person that provides the care says, thank you for coming because no one ever comes. And they feel abandoned. You know, people go in and get the services and they leave. And it was this hole within the, within the movement that was people are fighting legislation, lobbying, um, escorting patients, raising funds for patients, and nobody was checking in in a consistent, realistic way as to how are the, how are the providers doing? Do they get what they need? Um, they're being harassed in their community. Um, are the supporters in the community aware of that, and how can they support them? And so um, we do that. Like it's, it's, and we're not going to like Boston or Portland or San Francisco. We're in Little Rock and Jackson, Wichita. Like we spend our time in really hard hit places. And then the last thing we do when we're there is um, if you're a provider, this is the dirty, one of the many dirty secrets of, of trying to do abortion provision in America is um, if you're a small independent provider in a town, which oftentimes in cities, it's not a Planned Parenthood. They're small community clinics that are independent. Um, if you need your lawn mowed or you need your um, exam rooms painted or you need a plumber, um, they won't come because you provide abortion. They can't get services. So we provide, we go in and we do a practical service overhaul. We'll redo their gardens, mow their lawns, paint their exam rooms. And then during the show and conversation that we have, we introduce the needs of that particular clinic to the group and then Inevitably, there is somebody in our audience who says, wait, are you telling me that activism can be, I, as a landscaper, get a new client, and I can mow their lawn weekly, and I get paid, and that's activism. And I said, yeah, in your community, you parking your van in front of that clinic and saying I support them and I'm happy to service them is a massive thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so we bring community together like that, too. That's so incredible. So it's pretty great. Yeah. It's pretty great. I love it. We might have time for one more question if, if there's one left. Right in the back here. Um, so my question is in regards to all of the hosts of shows, the daily show, late night talk shows, which is predominantly male, white male driven um, in a time where Lily Singh has just gotten a um, late later, a little later um, night talk show. What do you envision is the realm of people as as an audience to really demand um, these networks to promote someone who is more diverse, a, a female, a woman of color, and then kind of what do you think about that in a general uh, way? Thank you. Um, 
I think a couple of things. I think it's utter garbage that we live in a society that keeps having that same voice driving that. Um, I also think that unless the structure, I mean, we just fired Les Moonves last year, Mm -hmm. right? The tolerance we have for executives and boards to look the other way and to promote that kind of boys clubby kind of thing exists. Um, I just, at some point feel like those shows, sometimes I just feel like are wholly irrelevant. And if it's going to continue to perpetuate this with the platforms that exist in the world now, let's dominate those, Mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's, let's support things where, we don't have to rely on corporate boards and men that keep getting promoted up a ladder that choose these people. Like when I tell you that they don't even put very, they've rarely put women up for these jobs ever at all anyway. Why do we put up with it? Like, you know, I just, for me, it's, there's so much available um, as far as creating our own work And it's part of the reason that I just finally said I want to get out of the cycle of white dudes telling me how I should do comedy and what I should do and um, get into a place where I can be funny, still make videos, travel, do comedy, and then wrap the activism into it. I think we need to create our own realities and, and it's really hard, but power structures that were created without us being at the table, we need to smash the table. Like, I feel like we're all at, let's get a seat at the table. No, I don't like that table. That table was not created with me in mind, with people of color in mind. It's just a table that I don't want to sit at because as long as it was created, not with the voices of all of us as part of it, it's still a patriarchal table. Fuck that table. We need new tables, and then we need to elevate those tables. And we all have to do that, and it's hard, but that's how we have to move forward is what I think. I swear a lot. I'm sorry. I'm okay. No, no. I, I know. I, I, I swear so much. I don't know what happened to me. You're, you're ge- but I swear constantly. You're giving me we, the curse. We won't curse. air this episode yeah. on Vatican Radio. Okay, great. <laughs> That's great. Oh, my gosh. Liz, wow. It's been an incredible, vagical hour. Well, um, thank you for having me. I'm glad that it was magically delicious. Um, (laughs) I I get the last question. I always do. Okay. On on this particular show. Um, This is my show. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you should take a point of privilege on that. Going to. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that we went the entire hour without really mentioning a certain president and his his name and and just the the horrible corruption, this administration and the rollback on women's rights. And, you know, um, but at the same time with his um, him, you know, being president and all, he has created this momentum, one of the largest protest in American history, uh, uh, Women's March, in which, thank you, Women's March is here tonight. Sophia is here, one of the co-captains. Yay! Um, woo! Hi, y'all! And Kelly. And so to go back to all the great work that you're doing with the abortion access front and this momentum that we have, and we're looking to 2020, last words from you, how do we keep that momentum? How do we unite? What do we need to do? Get this 
person out of office and, uh, you know, reclaim our power and, and move forward with progress? Um, well, one thing I will say is, as far as reproductive rights goes, um, this disaster started in 2010, way before Trump, because people did not understand um, state and local politics and people did not understand how the right creates model legislation and dropped it into legislatures. Um, what Trump has done <clears throat> is, um, you know, we had to get elected, so we had to get Pence. And I think it's literally Mike Pence who was driving a lot of this religious agenda, um, for sure. I mean, when you look at the Department of Health and Human Services, there's 50 executives, to my count, um, that all have come from anti-abortion extremist places, literally running all of our health stuff ignoring actual health stuff. But how do we get rid of Trump? I think the most important thing to do is if you're going to ask people to march, you have a space for them to take action in other ways. Um, I think it's crucial that people, this is our life now, right? And so how do we add activism in our world that seems manageable, that seems communal, that seems invigorating, that is sustainable, um, and that shows us real change. Um, I think small group, large group combination things are super important. I think um, looking at ways that people can be active that are inclusive of um, people's abilities, whether that's physical or mental, um, people's economic time they can take off, um, and... And creating large and small ways. What we do um, with our with our organization is we have tools that people. If you have if you have five minutes, if you have an hour, if you have a day, if you have a week, um, we can give you something to do. Um, but we need to create ways that people can work and have activism that's sustained and understand like the larger picture. I think starting local is super important because. These demons didn't come, Trump didn't come out of nowhere, and these congressmen and these senators didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of school boards and city councils, mm -hmm. and they came out of state legislatures. And so getting people together in their communities and neighborhoods, especially with people who hold them accountable, you know, neighborhood block parties are huge. Indivisible and flippable and swing left have been incredible incredible resources, talking to people, holding people accountable, having people's backs. It's the left's version of Sunday church. Mm -hmm. For those that do not attend church every Sunday, that's why the right is super popular. If you belong to a church, you go get your marching orders at church. To be able to meet consistently, hold yourself accountable, looking at a larger world better than yourselves, um, I think that that's, that's how we get rid of this person, by... Um, activating the folks who have been dormant. Um, I'm not going to change anybody's mind on abortion, but I am certainly going to try to say, hey, if you actually believe in human rights, I'd love you to just have a conversation with me about why it's super important to understand that if you are going to fight for human rights, somebody's decision to whether or not they want to have kids and their ability to, if they want to have them, to have them in a healthy and safe environment isn't the number one priority to economic and social justice. Um, 
then we're going to just keep talking until we get there. So I think that those things really matter. But I just think it's community. It's talking. It's starting small, bringing new people into the fold and having them start locally because you can actually see victories at first locally and then growing out. I think that um, it's important. And also identifying places out. If you have a community that seems to be working for you, um, understand that even though it's working for you, it doesn't mean it's working for everybody. Mm. You know, right. you know that more than anybody in yeah. San Francisco. You know, you see how a city that has become so unattainable financially for so many people. Um, you know, there's no yeah. such thing as a safe space because there's always vulnerable people in it. Liz Winston, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you Woo. for having me. I appreciate it. It was really fun. I enjoyed Thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club for the Michelle Miao Show. And uh, please support Abortion Access Front. Yes, aafront.org. You can can go there, find out all of our work. Yeah, and uh, and of course, pick up the memoir because it's a really good one, Liz Free or Die. And we have more of these great programs coming up. Check the full listing at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 